1: wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The following is an Airwaves Media podcast. Since 1931, the Empire State Building has been an iconic part of the New York City skyline. To reach its observation deck on the 102nd floor, you have your choice between one of 73 elevators or 1,872 steps. It is a big building, and in 2008, someone stole it. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you think of big heists, your mind probably goes to banks, jewelry, or fine art. Maybe a casino vault. Carefully organized plans by people dressed in black turtlenecks with lots of cool gadgets and harrowing close calls. What we remember as a daring heist of one of the world's most famous paintings was none of those things. The theft of Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa wasn't even noticed when it happened. These days, the Mona Lisa, also called La Gianconda, which I will do to an obnoxious frequency, and her famous wry smile, hang in a prominent place in the Louvre in Paris. It holds the Guinness World Record for the highest known insurance valuation in history at $100 million, in 1962 anyway. But that's worth about $800 million today for, you know, a single painting. Over 6 million people every year go just to see it. It's so popular that you can't even snap a quick picture without dozens of other strangers' cell phones in the way. This popularity wasn't the case when the painting was first hung in the Louvre in 1804, or for a century afterwards. Neither was it all that popular with critics and the artistic elite, who often relegated it to the low end of da Vinci's work. It was just another painting. It was so unspecial, in fact, that it took the better part of 24 hours for staff to even notice that the painting had gone missing in 1911. A handyman named Vincenzo Perugia, who was working in the museum, had simply waited in a closet until after the museum had closed, tucked the painting under his smock, and walked out. He was unwittingly aided by a plumber, also working in the museum, who unlocked a door for Perugia when he found himself stuck. The police were called and they searched the museum. But the only sign they found of La Gianconda was its frame laying on a staircase. police did find some 21 other paintings that the curators had previously reported missing. The search went citywide, then national, then international. Ships were searched before they left France or after arriving in their port of call. A reward of over half a million dollars in today's money was offered. The Mona Lisa's picture was printed in newspapers all across the world. It was sort of a Mona Lisa mania. The theft of this single painting served to spawn multiple criminal enterprises. People on the wrong side of the law knew that those with more money than morals would want to buy La Gianconda. A pair of confidence men from Belgium hired a small army of forgers to make high-quality fakes, which they sold to select buyers in different countries. They made sure their buyers were unlikely to ever meet or communicate and rested soundly knowing no one would let on that they purchased the most famous stolen painting in the world, though today they would probably just take a selfie with it. The huge reward and the number of fakes in circulation meant that the police were inundated with leads. For two years, they searched tirelessly, but fruitlessly. The 60-man strong force even interviewed Perugia twice but decided he couldn't be the criminal mastermind they were looking for. Not only did those two years not yield the Mona Lisa, the police didn't even find the wealth of forgeries. The head of the Paris Police Department retired in shame. So did Perugia get the enormous payday he was looking for? People were soon to learn that that wasn't why he stole her at all. When Perugia approached a museum in Florence to sell them the painting, the museum's director called the police. After his arrest, Perugia stated, I worked in the Louvre making frames for paintings stolen from Italy by France. Every day I passed La Gianconda and swore I would return it to its rightful home. He seemed convinced that he would be heralded as a national hero. This did not turn out to be the case but the Italian courts were sympathetic to his motive, giving him only one year in prison for the world-famous theft. These days, La Gianconda sits behind more bulletproof glass than the Pope, but it could just as easily have been another Italian-born work. If a different one of Leonardo's works had been stolen, said Noah Charney, professor of art history and author of The Thefts of the Mona Lisa, then that would have been the most famous work in the world, not the Mona Lisa. There was nothing that really distinguished it per se until it was stolen. The theft is what really skyrocketed its appeal and made it a household name. A quick aside for an art theft story that, while not as famous, is no less memorable. After a pair of Spanish con men discovered the Goya painting they had purchased was a forgery, they tried to recoup their losses by reselling the painting to an alleged Arab sheik for 4 million euros using the same certificate of authenticity that had fooled them. A mysterious Italian middleman charged the Spaniards 300,000 euros for brokering the deal. The two con men traveled to Turin to receive 1.7 million Swiss francs as a down payment and pay the broker the 300,000 euros, which they borrowed from a friend. However, when the con men attempted to exchange the Swiss francs in a bank in Geneva, it was discovered they'd been given photocopies of francs. The fake painting had been paid for with fake money, though the money they had given the broker was very real, the equivalent of $400,000 today. To make matters even worse, on leaving Switzerland, the two were then detained by French customs, who discovered the fake Swiss francs in their suitcase and informed the Spanish authorities. The painting was also confiscated. Picture, if you will, an artist that's more famous for his technique than the art he actually created. He took his teacher's method and not only created a small empire from it, but took business away from said teacher, moving quickly from competitor to industry dominator. His teacher was given credit, but only in the very beginning. The public was allowed to make what assumptions they would about where this technique came from as long as they kept tuning into the show and buying the products. The artist's name? I am sorry to break this to you, listener. It's Bob Ross. Bob Ross, the famous soft-spoken Afro host of The Joy of Painting, was taught his famous wet-on-wet fast painting technique by German expat Bill Alexander, who actually had his own PBS painting show called The Magic of Oil Painting from 1974 to 1982. Alexander's show, like The Joy of Painting, which ran from 83 to 94, was basically an advertisement for his paint supply business, Alexander Art. Bob Ross began his adult life in the Air Force, where he would rise to be Master Sergeant and was stationed in Alaska, which is no doubt why he painted so many snow-covered vistas. He was constantly searching for an art teacher who could actually teach him to paint, when he took Bill Alexander's class. The wet-on-wet painting technique was an epiphany for Ross. The Joy of Painting started airing on PBS in 1983. At first, things were pleasant between Ross and Alexander, with Alexander even filming a segment to pass the torch to his former student. The Joy of Painting was generating so much business for Alexander Art that they couldn't keep up with demand, and someone, that person's identity has been lost to history, suggested that Bob Ross start his own art supply company. After Bob Ross Inc. became a $15 million industry unto itself of how-to books, videos, and art supplies, something between the two changed. In a 1991 New York Times profile, Ross declined to mention his painting teacher because, quote, he is our major competitor. Alexander, was somewhat more verbose in interviews. He betrayed me. I invented wet-on-wet. Wet. I trained him and he's copying me. What bothers me is not just that he betrayed me, but that he thinks he can do it better. Whew, strong whiff of ego coming off of this guy. Full disclosure, Alexander also did not invent wet-on-wet wet or a la prima. It dates back at least as far as Van Eyck, Van Gogh, and Monet. So why was Ross able to eclipse Alexander to such an extent? It may come down to something as simple as likability. Alexander was passionate and animated, prone to rambling and singing off key. Imagine if Alex Jones could paint. Ross, on the other hand, was laid back and avuncular, a completely non-threatening peacenik. Ross saw this distinction as did PBS station managers who realized, as the New York Times reported, Ross's expanding circle of viewers were, for the most part, not even painting, nor did they have any plans to start. They watched because the joy of painting was the most relaxing show on television. It was unfailingly simple, a three-camera production with a black backdrop and, at Ross's insistence, no edits. He wore the same thing for every show, blue jeans and a John Henry shirt, and in 26 minutes not only completes a painting, but also, in his lullaby soft voice, murmurs famous Bob-isms like, happy little trees, and what the heck, let's give him a little friend over here, and there are no mistakes, only happy accidents. The show was so nice to listen to that it was especially popular with blind viewers. Obscuring and outselling his teacher aside, the internet isn't wrong with its recent love affair with Bob Ross. Not only is he the OG of ASMR, but you've got to love a guy who once did an entire episode working only in shades of gray because he got a letter from a viewer who said he couldn't paint along because he was colorblind. His trademark Afro was actually a perm that he'd initially gotten to avoid the cost of properly maintaining a crew cut, and then found himself more or less stuck with to stay on brand. Did Bob Ross mind when people told him that his show put them to sleep? No, he sincerely enjoyed it, just as much as the people who said that he'd inspired them to paint. And one time he did the show with a squirrel in his pocket. So I mean,
2: there you go. You can draw what conclusion you want to about the man. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.
0: From art, we move to science. What do you think is the worst part of working on a group project? Is it trying to come to a meeting of the minds on what you're going to do? Is it the person who accepts their share of the assignment and then doesn't do anything? Or is it when someone takes all the credit for one of the greatest advances in our understanding of biology? Well, that's what happened to the discoverer of the double helix shape of DNA, English chemist and X-ray crystallographer Rosalind Franklin. With the exception of Mary Curie, there's probably no other female scientist with as much controversy surrounding her life and work as Rosalind Franklin. Franklin was responsible for much of the research and discovery work that led to the understanding of the structure of deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA. Born in 1920, Franklin excelled at science and attended one of the few girls' schools in London that taught physics and chemistry. When she was 15, she decided to become a scientist. And despite her father's stance against higher education for women, and his wish that Rosalind become a social worker, she enrolled at Newham College, Cambridge, in 1938. She held a graduate fellowship for a year, but quit in 1942 to work at the British Coal Utilization Research Association, where she made fundamental studies of carbon and graphite microstructures. Coal was not only important for power, but charcoal was a key component of gas masks. Her research was her contribution to the war efforts of World War II, and was the basis for her doctorate in physical chemistry, which she earned from Cambridge in 1945. After Cambridge, she spent three productive years in a laboratory in Paris, where she learned X-ray diffraction techniques. X-ray diffraction is an important, non-destructive method of analyzing all kinds of matter, from fluids to powders to crystals. The technique involves bombarding the sample with X-rays. The electron cloud of the atoms in the sample bends the X-rays slightly. This makes a picture of the molecule that can be seen on a screen. In 1951, Franklin returned to England as a research associate in John Randall's laboratory at King's College, London. It was in Randall's lab that she crossed paths with Maurice Wilkins. She and Wilkins led separate research groups, although both were concerned with DNA. Randall assigned Franklin a DNA project that had already begun, but no one had worked on it for months. Wilkins was away at the time, and when he returned, he misunderstood Franklin's role there, behaving as though she were an assistant A disappointing but not surprising turn of events for the 1950s. I mean, only men were allowed to eat in the university dining room, and after hours, Franklin's colleagues all went out to pubs where women were not welcome. Nevertheless, Franklin persisted on the DNA project. Her techniques allowed her to take better images of the structure of DNA than anyone had done before. J.D. Bernal a scientist who pioneered the use of X-ray crystallography in molecular biology, called her X-ray photographs of DNA the most beautiful X-ray photographs of any substance ever taken. Without Franklin's knowledge or permission, Wilkins showed her images and data to James Watson and Francis Crick, who were themselves working on a DNA project. Franklin's photo was essential to the findings that they published in 1953, again without her knowledge. Franklin was aware of their research, but had no idea that her work had become subsumed into theirs, as she was not credited at all. The closest she got was the journal Nature citing her work to bolster Watson and Crick's claims. Rosalind Franklin would continue working until her death from ovarian cancer in 1958. Four years after that, Watson and Crick were awarded a Nobel Prize for their discovery. They shared the award with Wilkins, but made no mention of Franklin. Now, in fairness, Nobel Prizes aren't awarded posthumously, but it still would have been nice if they had name-dropped her. The theft of intellectual property from one person is inarguably bad, but it pales in comparison to stealing the life savings of thousands of people. Compounding the economic crisis of 2008 were Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme. He and his accomplices stole as much as $20 billion from investors. They'd been at it for so long that to this day, no one's sure when it actually started we can be sure that most of the people he bilked will see little or no money ever come back. Outside of really bad fraud, what is a Ponzi scheme? The basic mechanism is to promise your investors irresistible returns and take their money. Then you promise these amazing returns to a second group of people, take their money, and use it as the returns for the first group of people who will hopefully give you even more money now that they see how well your system works. Then you get a third group of investors and give their money to Group 2, all of this while keeping a tidy portion back for yourself. The word Ponzi is a proper noun, the family name of a charismatic Italian immigrant who lived in Boston in 1920. Charles Ponzi stood only five foot two. nothing wrong with that. But he was a giant in his community, though only briefly. Ponzi claimed that he had figured out a way to cash in on the chaotic post-World War I economic conditions in Europe by buying international postal union coupons from certain countries where they had been discounted and redeeming them at full value in the United States. For example, a coupon could be bought in Germany for a penny and redeemed in the US for a nickel. Lather, rinse, repeat until you are stinking rich. Ponzi claimed he had an army of agents scouring Europe to buy all available discounted coupons. In 1919 and 1920, Ponzi took in upwards of $15 million in small investments from 40,000-plus people, many of them Italian-Americans and recent immigrants. People lined up around the block, literally, to get through the pie-alley entrance to Ponzi Securities Exchange Company and hand over their hard-earned wages. I mean, everyone gets rich in America, right? Well, Ponzi certainly did. He bought a hundred suits with matching shoes. He smoked copious cigars through diamond-studded holders. His mansion in Lexington had air conditioning and a heated pool. He was just shy of lighting his cigars with $100 bills while he propped his feet up on poor investors. But his life of Riley came to an end in the summer of 1920. After an investigation, the feds declared that every single postal coupon redeemed in the entire country by everyone wouldn't account for a fraction of the profit Ponzi was claiming to have made off them. A public relations man who worked for Ponzi briefly told the Boston Globe, The man is a complete financial idiot. He can barely add. He sits around with his feet on the desk, talking complete gibberish about postal coupons. The publicist further claimed that Ponzi had never once issued or received a foreign financial draft. On Monday, August 9th, a bank commissioner declared Ponzi's accounts were overdrawn. On Wednesday, it was revealed that Ponzi had served prison time in Canada for forgery and in Atlanta for smuggling illegal immigrants. Investors swarmed his office, desperately trying to get their money back. By Friday, Ponzi was in custody. In the face of over 10,000 creditors demanding $4.3 million, Ponzi declared bankruptcy. God, something about this seems eerily familiar to recent events. I don't know who it reminds me of, though. He was later sentenced to five years in federal prison for 86 counts of mail fraud since he had mailed his victims' letters reporting how well their investments were doing. He served about three and a half of those years, then got released to face state charges, for which he received a sentence of nine more years. But before he could go back to jail... He jumped bail and tried to start new scams in Florida and Texas. You would think the government would have learned their lesson about trusting this guy. Eventually, though, his time on the lam ran out, and he served his full sentence. Upon his release, Ponzi was deported to Italy, where the man who was more clever than he was smart tried to defraud Benito Mussolini. The rest of his life was a string of less successful cons and jail sentences until his death in a charity hospital in Brazil in 1949. Our modern-day Ponzi Bernie Madoff died last year of kidney failure, having served 12
2: years of his 150-year sentence. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with WIRED wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist?
0: If you don't want to steal someone's money directly, what about just stealing their job? That's what gave the world the first look at R. Lee Ermey as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in Stanley Kubrick's 1987 Vietnam epic, Full Metal Jacket. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound
1: off
2: like you got a pair. Sir,
0: Sir, yes, sir. Any reason that needed to be played? No, could I have gone on without playing it? Of course not. As a teenager, Ermi, a Kansas native, was arrested twice for criminal mischief. The judge gave him a choice, prison or the military. Ermi chose the latter and joined the Marine Corps, where he served for 11 years, including 14 months in Vietnam. Eventually, he became a drill sergeant, which was one reason he excelled so much as Hartman. After retiring from the military, Ermy decided on a new career path and began taking acting classes. He once told an interviewer that he devised a plan to break into Hollywood, use his knowledge from his military service to become a technical director on certain films, then, once in the crew, show filmmakers that he should be starring in their movies. The plan actually worked three times in a row, scoring him his first three roles as Sergeant Sidney Fury in The Boys and Company C, a helicopter pilot in Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, and the role of Hartman. The role of Hartman, though, originally belonged to actor Tim Colseri, but he tired himself out after a paltry 30 minutes of non-stop yelling at extras during a videotaped rehearsal. Ermi stepped in and took over. His energy never let up. Colceri ended up playing the door gunner instead. Now, here's where the story does start to spin off a little bit into modern urban legend territory. Some accounts claim that Arlie Ermey went to director Stanley Kubrick and asked for the role of Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, since, in his opinion, the actors on set weren't up to snuff. When Kubrick declined, Ermey barked an order for Kubrick to stand up when he was spoken to, and the director reflexively obeyed. And Ermey got the role. Another account holds that Ermi persuaded Kubrick to cast him by making a homemade audition tape that showed him screaming insults with a stone face as tennis balls and oranges were thrown at his head. Once he landed the role, though, however he got it, he rehearsed in the same manner. Kubrick's assistant, Leon Vitali, would sit across from Ermi in a 50-foot-long room and hurl tennis balls at the actor while he practiced his lines. I had to catch the ball and throw it back to Leon as fast as possible and say the lines as fast as possible, Ermi said in a 1987 interview. If I slur a word, drop a word, or slow down, I had to start over. I had to do it 20 times without a mistake. Leon was my drill instructor. For the most part, Hartman's lines weren't written. Ermi improvised about half his dialogue, drawing on his memories from the service. Inventing those insults wasn't particularly difficult for him. He was just being a drill sergeant. Only this time he was doing it on camera. My main objective was basically to just play the drill instructor the way the drill instructor was and let the chips fall where they may. You can ask any drill instructor who was down there in 65 or 66. That's exactly how the drill instructor's demeanor was. There were no punches pulled. Though a kind and gentle family man in real life Ermi would play essentially the same character to varying degrees in over a hundred projects, as varied as HBO's horror staple Tales from the Crypt, the short-lived and tragically underappreciated sci-fi series Space Above and Beyond, and family-friendly classics like the Toy Story movies, where he voiced the little green army man Sarge. Bonus fact, in the same way that Captain Kirk never said Beam me up Scotty and Sherlock Holmes never said elementary, my dear Watson, the phrase full metal jacket does not appear in the book that the film full metal jacket is based on. Gustav Hasford's The Short Timers. Kubrick got the phrase from a gun catalog. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. So how do you steal a half mile high building? In 2008, the New York Daily News filed paperwork to transfer the deed of the Empire State Building to themselves. The application was full of red flags, things like the witness being actress Faye Ray, best known for being in King Kong, and the notary was infamous bank robber Willie Sutton. It took a full 90 minutes for the error to be noticed, but in that time, the New York Daily News had successfully stolen the $2 billion Empire State Building. Remember, you can find the source links and script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. This is an Airwave Media production, along with such other great shows as The Explorers and The Constant. Check them out at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.
2: Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charles, with your friendly neighborhood social scientist and reader of books.